0: Some Democrats are beginning to suspect that yesterday's Mueller hearing, which left the party in a smoking ruin of self-deceived buffoonery, may not have been as smart a strategic move as a move that would not have left the party in a smoking ruin of self-deceived buffoonery. Jerry Nadler, chairman of the Committee to Seize and Devour the Three Billy Goats Gruff, gave a statement to reporters while wandering dazed up and down the Capitol steps with his face charred and his clothes reduced to ashes. He said, quote, We knew the Mueller report found no collusion between Trump and Russia, and we knew it didn't prove obstruction of justice. But how could we have guessed that seeing Mueller himself repeat his findings would not convince the public that the report said something utterly different than what it actually said? I can't understand it. It was almost as if reality were totally different than what we saw in the news, unquote. In his testimony, Robert Mueller did add to the impact of his report by telling the committee he did not understand the question, he was not sure what they meant, It wasn't in his jurisdiction, and he could not remember what they were talking about, or where he was, or indeed who he was, but it was all in the report, and they should check it there. After the hearing, chief ABC newsman, Democrat operative, and friend to Jeffrey Epstein, George Sukalopagus, lay his head on his news desk and sobbed uncontrollably, saying, quote, I was absolutely certain that this was the beginning of the end of the start of an existential crisis that would mark a turning point in the walls closing in of the chickens coming home to roost of the end of the beginning of the finale of the impeachment of the horrible Trump presidency. After all, I remember hearing that repeatedly on TV, unquote. When told he had heard it on his own show, Sokolopagus said, quote, Oh, well, that explains why it was completely untrue. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Klavan, and This is The Andrew Claven Show. tickety-boo, birds are winging, also singing, hunky dunky Ship-shaped, dipsy topsy the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh,
1: hooray, hooray.
0: So you know, all my life I have been a freelancer, a freelance writer, freelance, I do everything freelance basically, and the apparatus that it takes to get work, as a freelancer, and to connect yourself to the people who are looking for you, who are actually looking for you, is so complex and so huge and so expensive that I'm thrilled to hear it could be replaced by Fiverr. Thanks to Fiverr, finding the right freelancer doesn't have to be a struggle. Fiverr's marketplace connects businesses with freelancers who offer hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. You can find what you're looking for instantly. I've used it. It's really easy. You just put on a search and All the people who want the kind of jobs uh, you have and do the kinds of things you're looking for are right there. You can search by service, delivery time, price reviews, and more. And there are no surprises. You'll know exactly what you're paying for up front. No negotiating needed. Take five and check out Fiverr.com. That's F-I-V-E There's two R's in Fiverr.com. You'll receive 10% off for your first order by using my code Andrew. It's so easy. Don't waste any more time and get the service you deserve by going to Fiverr.com, code Andrew. Again, that's Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R.com code Andrew. Take a look. All right. We've all heard the old expression that a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth puts its boots on. Never has that been more true than today when search and social media have joined the Democrat news media complex, the entertainment industry, and the academies with the express intention of spreading the left-wing lie that our elites can govern us better than we can govern our racist, sexist, unwoke, deplorable, irredeemable, hateful selves. But here's the thing. Lives do move fast, but once the truth does get its boots on, they are big, big boots. They are Godzilla-sized boots. They're city-crushing, earthquake-causing, lie-flattening boots that tend to leave the lies that raced around before crushed beneath them like cockroaches or rats or commentators on CNN. Yesterday was a good day. A -a two-and-a-half-year lie was exposed, the lie that Donald Trump won the presidential election because of some shenanigans he pulled with Russia. Trump won the election because his opponent was a crook, he outsmarted the opposition on the debate stage and on the electoral field, and because he broke the rules of political correctness that have held us all in mental chains too long, and we appreciated it. And listen, While our journalistic community has betrayed its own principles, sold its integrity, and replaced its sacred mission of truth-telling with political propaganda, it's not that I enjoy seeing them publicly disgraced and humiliated and dragged through the mud of their own dishonesty with their hopes crushed and their dishonesty exposed. Oh, wait. Yes, it is. That's exactly what I enjoy. In fact, it makes me laugh like some old movie villain. I love it. But I also love seeing, if only for one day, the technology has not become so advanced, media so loud and confusion so rampant that the truth cannot still have its day and destroy everything in his path. Because the truth is this, we voted for Trump because for all his flaws, he is better than the establishment, better than the elites, better than the academics, better than the America hating left and the tremulous weak-kneed right. And if the elites hate Donald Trump so much, and we like Trump better than we like them, Maybe it's time the elites started asking themselves how they sank so low that we the people prefer even the man they despise to them because then they too will know the truth about themselves which is that they are silver spoon mediocrities who are not there to rule us but to serve us deplorably normal though we may be. Man oh man, I laughed yesterday. I haven't had a laugh like that in a long time. You know, I think I think before we do anything else, we, it's been a long time since we've had the Trump happiness montage, but yesterday I think deserve the Trump happiness montage. Let it rip.
1: We're going to win so much. We're going to win at every level. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're going to win economically. We're going to win with the economy. We're going to win with military. We're going to win with health care and for our veterans. We're going to win with every single facet. Zip, Zip, my oh my what a wonderful day we're gonna win so much you may even get tired of winning Yay! And you will say please please it's too much winning we can't take it anymore i feel pretty oh so pretty i feel pretty i don't know, we know Austin, this could go
0: on for another 10 minutes we have to them. keep winning
1: we have to win more we're gonna win <laughs> more <laughs>
0: I love that. I've missed that. I've missed that. You know, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how can you, a Christian full of love in your heart for all mankind, how can you revel at the smoking ruin that yesterday left the Democrat party in and their media? And here's the thing. I do revel in it. It did make me, you know, I was that thing. I feel pretty. I feel pretty. That was me yesterday, except for the the purple dress, because it's the thing is, it's not Trump they hate it really isn't. I mean they hate Trump, but it's us. They keep saying it over and over if you supported Trump, if you support this, if you don't b- believe us and there's such mediocrities they have sold I've every- I- I got to play out. I have got to play out some of this media anticipation. I mean it was delicious. I'm talking obviously about the Mueller hearings. he had he gave two uh, hearings. And we'll get to what was in them, which was nothing. But it was the anticipation that made it just so beautiful. Uh, This is uh, cut number three.
2: Everybody here in D.C. counting down to... Mueller time pretty much
1: whatever happens tomorrow is high stakes high stakes hearing on capitol hill the stakes are extremely high the stakes are so high the stakes could not be higher we are on the eve of historic hearings historic. historic historic testimony, testimony. Historic. Historic. historic historic this is the room where history will unfold you really can't overestimate what is on the line for democrats when it comes to robert muller's testimony this is a very big deal
0: so crucial really really important very dramatic muller's testimony this morning could be their last best chance to convince the public to support impeachment. Do you think there's a make-or-break moment? Look, it's their make-or-break moment.
2: Could the outcome sway undecided House Democrats on impeachment?
0: What happens here today is
1: likely to be a turning point in the fight over impeachment.
2: Do you think that it could change the dial on impeachment?
1: It's going to be very damning.
2: The recitation of that evidence could be incredibly damaging.
0: A key moment in the Trump presidency. Testifying before Congress (laughs) with the presidency at stake. Uh, presidency is a Splat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, it's not fair to make fun. Oh yeah, it is, it's fair. It's like, it's ridiculous. They hate this guy so much and they don't hate him just because he's him. They hate him because he's us. They hate him because he's us telling us that all their values stink, that they're selling us, that that they're the elites and we have to listen to them. They, they—it's just so—they're so bad at what they do. They're so—they're even worse at what they're supposed to do. Uh, It's—it was delicious to watch what happened, and I will tell you about that in just a second. But first, let us talk about Netsuite, which is. To Help you. It's to help you gather your business all into one place. I have to do this all the time. I run my own business. It's all just a bunch of paper floating around. And if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. The problem growing businesses have all businesses have that keep them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. And that's where NetSuite comes in. NetSuite by Oracle is a business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desktop or your phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at NetSuite.com slash Claven. That's NetSuite.com slash Claven to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. NetSuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash. Claven, ah, yes, but that's the rub, right? How do you spell Claven? It's K L A V A N. No ease. No ease in Claven. I just, I, I make it look easy. It's just the way, the way I do it. I don't know what it is. It's just a skill I have. So <laughs> let's take a look at Muller's testimony. And this this really was, a, this is a good compilation of, of Muller's testimony. Uh, I think uh, this is cut one.
3: I'm not going to discuss uh, other matters. I'm not going to answer that. I, I'm not familiar uh, uh, with uh, with that. Uh, I'm not going to yes. get into that. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to engage in discussion about what happened after the uh, production of our uh, report. Not going to get into details. That's not within my purview. Well, uh, I. I I can't get into who wrote it. I can't get into that internal deliberations. I I, I, I can't get into it. I am not going to get into that. I don't want to speculate. I'm not going to go further in terms of discussing. I don't necessarily credit uh, what you're saying uh, occurred. I can't go into the discussion of uh, uh, our uh, investigative moves. I'm not going to get into that any further than I I already have. I get into that at this juncture. I can't speak to that. I can't speak to that. That was outside our purview. I'm not going to speak to that. Uh, I'm not going to speak to that. not going to get into that. And I am not going to answer that question, sir. I do not accept your characterization of what occurred. I'm not going to speak any more to it. I'm not going to
0: answer that. <laughs> so that's, that, was pretty, that was pretty much it. You know, the, the shocking thing about it, and it actually was shocking, is, it, I mean, the guy has had a, a distinguished career, and I'm sure at some point he was right on top of it, but he seemed... Doddering. He seemed to not know what was in his own report. He seemed to not know important things. Uh, he didn't know uh, that one of the um, prosecutors on his team represented Hillary Clinton uh, until after the prosecutor joined the team. He didn't remember the steel dossier or where it came from. And it raised the question, it raised the serious question, who was running this thing? Because we know that all of his people, almost all of his people were Democrats. Many of them were Democrat supporters financially, had given money to Democrats. Many of them were Hillary Clinton supporters financially. So that means that while the Republicans stood looking on, basically a team of opponents went after Donald Trump on a Russia collusion conspiracy theory that simply was a hoax. That's what happened. I mean that really was what looked like hap- looked like it was happening. So all this time they're making fun of Sean Hannity who's sitting there going this is a conspiracy, all these democrat hating people, all these trump hating people, all this fra-. you know the thing is you want to make fun of Sean Hannity, you don't want to behave like Sean Hannity says you're behaving. You know, you want to make fun of the guy, you have to not be the guy he says you are and it really did look like this was it really looked like a hit job. It made it look like a hit job. If, if Mueller, the great, the honest, the one Republican on the staff, he was the only uh, registered Republican on the staff, as I recall, if he's if that one guy who was supposed to be the you know, rock jawed, uh, square jawed Gary Cooper of honesty, if he had no clue what was going on then it was all struck in page. It was all these people uh, who hated Donald Trump going after Donald Trump, and even they could not come up with anything. And when they said he wasn't exonerated, uh, a status that simply doesn't exist, uh, not being exonerated by the law is a status that simply does not exist. You're either guilty or you're not guilty. You either bring uh, charges or you don't bring charges. He didn't bring charges. Trump, in a single leap, Donald is free, right? And so, so all of this stuff... I mean, it was just embarrassing. There was one moment, there was one moment of potential news uh, when Ted Lieu asked him if the only reason, and this has been kind of a sticking point, if the only reason he didn't recommend charging the president was because the DOJ says you can't indict a sitting president. And at first, Mueller, who just seemed like he really was not competent to answer these questions, uh, at first he said, uh, yes, that's right. And then he came back later in the second hearing, in the afternoon hearing, uh, and corrected himself. Here are both cuts.
3: The reason, again, that you did not indict
4: Donald Trump is because of OLC opinion stating that you cannot indict a sitting president, correct?
3: Uh, That is correct. I want to go back to one thing that was said this morning by Mr. Liu, who said, and I quote, you didn't charge the president because of the OLC opinion. That is not the correct way to say it. As we say in the report, and as I said at the opening, we did not reach a determination as to whether the president committed a crime,
0: and you got to love the disappointment afterwards. I mean, this—we are—we put this together a little bit of a disappointment—a montage of the press afterwards, going back to remembering. Oh, this is it. This is the turning point. It's the beginning of the end. The walls closing in. This endless, endless refrain we have heard for two years, and this was after the hearings were over.
2: You look who's winning now. It certainly seems like Donald Trump is winning between the two. I don't
0: think there's any moment that stood out that says, oh my God, there was no aha moment from, from this. I I was hoping to hear a little
1: more clarity about whether or not we look at, at this report as a referral. That question, was the ball advanced? No, the impeachment's over. They needed more fuel for any kind of impeachment effort.
2: So look, on optics, this was a disaster. What
3: a lot of Democrats in particular used the D word and branded this a disaster
0: early on. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's just, you know, it's like they don't watch their own shows. It's like they don't hear themselves. And they think the other thing is I always compare it to singing in the rain. I don't know if you've seen that great is one of the greatest musicals ever made. And at the end of this, there's this girl who has been dubbing the words to this girl, to this other movie star who can't sing. And so the good girl is dubbing the words and they pull open the curtain and the, the nasty girl is pretending to sing while the good girl is singing in back of her and everybody's sitting there looking at it, but the bad girl doesn't know she's been exposed. That's what the press is like. It's like they walk around with their pants down and they think we don't notice. They think we don't see who they are. You know, they, that's how stupid they think we are. They, they started this whole thing, these hearings, because they thought we were too stupid to read the report, too stupid to know what was in the report, too stupid to actually understand. So they said, well, you didn't read the book, so we're going to show you the movie. And the movie was worse. I mean, the movie was actually worse than the book. A lot of people said, well, this is a victory for Nancy Pelosi. Why? Because she's been trying to tame the impeachment forces because she knows she's smart and canny enough to know that if they go on with this, if they impeach Trump, we see them now. We see them. It's like they're right in front of us. They're not hiding from us. The curtain is open. We see who they are. If they impeach Trump, I think Trump will walk away with the 2020 election. If they try to impeach him, if they bring this, if they just stop the business of the country, I think it'll be the same mistake the Republicans made with Clinton. We get it, we get Trump is an oddball, we get he's got a big mouth, we get he says things he shouldn't say, we get it. We knew that actually before we elected him. You know why? Because his name was Donald Trump, you know, we knew he was, you know, it's not like we elected some mystery man, he was Donald Trump, we'd seen him on TV for 20 years. It's it's absurd that they thought that that suddenly we're going to go, oh, wait a minute, we elected Donald Trump. We see them. So so they think so they think this was good for Nancy Pelosi because now they will tamp down uh, the, the forces that won impeachment. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. These, this impeachment thing has a life of its own. They're in this feedback loop with the media. The Democrats are in a feedback loop with the media. Everything they say, the media feeds it back to them. So they think it's true. They're in this little bubble. You know, it's really true that the Republicans are in this bubble too. They walk around terrified that the New York Times is going to say something. They don't think we're smart enough to understand that we will listen to them if they speak the truth. They don't think so. But the Democrats are also in that bubble getting this feedback. You're right, baby. You're right. We love you. We love you. They're like they're like the dictator who followed around by five guys uh, saying, you know, yeah, 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 the people love you, the people love you, and he doesn't see the mob outside with torches and pitchforks. That's what the Democrats are like. If you want to see, I I mean, almost a towering example, a towering example of self-deception and self-ignorance, I introduce to you, I present to the defense, Chuck Todd. If you want to see a guy who is wandering around in his own little bubble world. And I I don't think the guy is lying. I don't. I think he is wandering around in his own little bubble world without any sense at all of what the truth is or what his life is like. This is cut number 11. This is Chuck Todd. After it's over, after, remember, they were telling us it's going to be so great, it's the beginning of the end, it's an existential crisis, walls are closing in, ah, bah, 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 bah. Chuck Todd thinks that he, he was foiled, that Mueller in his decency was foiled, by the right-wing media machine.
2: We are living in this 21st century um, a new type of asymmetrical media warfare that we're in. and You have Wait. a propaganda machine on the right. And that's what it is, is a full-fledged propaganda machine on the right that the Democrats haven't figured out how to combat very well yet. And, they were and I think they took the Trump bait. Meaning they said, oh, yeah, you're good at TV spectacles. We're going to make a TV spectacle. But they
1: were warned that he was not going to read. That's right. They They need to go back to just being. From his own report.
2: And this goes to the larger issue of have they fumbled the entire accountability uh, mission that they were supposed to be on these last seven months?
0: Chuck Todd needs to get out more. I mean, he's on NBC News. Chuck Todd, this left wing Democrat spokesman, this Democrat hack is on. NBC News he he runs their their big news show on on Sundays George Stephanopoulos this Clinton hack is running ABC News what the hell is he talking about is you know what's what's our right wing propaganda machine it's me you're looking at the right wing propaganda machine i'm it i'm it everything else it's in the new york times the washington post abc nbc cnn msnbc everything they own all the media they own everything, all that communication territory, Hollywood, they own Hollywood. Does anybody ever get up at the Oscar and say, thank you for this Oscar. And thank you, Donald Trump, for restoring the economy. You know, do you ever hear that? What would happen to the guy who did never work again? I can tell you, I know he would never work again. So what the hell is he talking about? What the hell is he talking about? And and what would have happened if there were no evil Sean Hannity uh, controlling the minds of the populace, but with those little red rays that come out of his eyes and control them from the one- uh, cable news station that supports the right, that has a tenth of the ra- of the ratings of the networks, what would happen? What would suddenly people suddenly say? Trump did collude with Russia? He obviously didn't. He obviously had did not have any kind of system for doing that and wouldn't have done it if he could. I mean, the one thing he said was that joke about, yes, Russia, please find Hillary Clinton's emails. We know that Hillary Clinton was lying. We know that she beat the rap uh, from James Comey that she was uh, that she was dealing in um, in classified information. So what, what is he talking about? What does he think we'd see? This obstruction of justice thing is a nonsense to begin with because the underlying charge doesn't exist. The underlying, If there was no underlying charge, what obstruction was he doing? Plus, he didn't obstruct anybody. Mueller himself said, what, they asked him, were you obstructed? He said no. So what does Chuck Todd think we would see if this horrible, horrible right-wing machine, by which he means one cable news channel and only half the commentators on that channel, because a lot of them, from Chris Wallace to uh uh what's his name? The guy in the afternoon, uh Shep Smith, they're Democrats. They're liberal Democrats. So what is he talking about? It's just this one half of one cable news station is this tremendous right-wing machine. If the right is so uh, powerful. Why is it that the Supreme Court, where where the right, the Republicans, have appointed more judges? I think twice as many judges as the left. Why has it been so left wing so long? It's because we don't use the tactics they use. We don't come out and say, "Oh, you know, you attacked some woman you never met." Forty years ago, we don't do that to them. We don't. We only over time have the Republicans learned to play as hard boiled as the left. It's only the left that got rid. Of, it's the left that got rid of, for instance, the uh, um, the filibuster. The left got rid of filibustering judges because they wanted to appoint judges with just a majority. It took a long time before the right could actually respond. The right has kind of respect for tradition and all these things. What is he talking about? It is, it's amazing to me that they live in this world. Well, let us uh, give at least the the last word. You know what? Let's not, let's just take this one thing. Here is, we've played this before, but it's worth playing again. Here is two years, two and a half years of Russia propaganda. This great right-wing Machine, propaganda machine, the Chuck Todd sees. Here's the left wing propaganda machine for two years of Russia propaganda.
2: Breaking news, a
3: bombshell. Today is a turning point. Today was historically bad
0: for President Trump. Today
3: was a a turning point. A
2: turning point. We're at a turning point here. The
0: beginning of the end for the Trump presidency. We
1: have another bombshell.
0: Mike Pence might have to assume the office of the presidency. Rumblings of the word impeachment. Breaking news. Another bombshell out of the White House. I believe this is the beginning of the end.
1: I do too. It's really the beginning of the
2: end. He may be feeling the walls closing in on him. All the walls closing in on him. The walls closing in. In on him. Breaking news, a new bombshell. One astrologer says this means the beginning of the end for President Donald Trump. Trump will resign. Trump is going to resign.
1: Is this the tipping point? I know we've said it over and over.
2: You think this is a tipping point?
1: And over and over. This
2: is a tipping point. And
1: over and over. Breaking news, President Trump off the rails. There's
2: a beginning of the end today. The
1: beginning of the end. Breaking news tonight, new bombshell.
2: This is
0: the beginning not the end.
1: The beginning of the end. The walls are closing in.
0: <laughs> it's a great right-wing propaganda machine. Let's give the last word on this story to our pre- the president of the United States Donald Trump, who actually just uh, spoke with great clarity but obviously is walking on air.
1: But I think today proved a lot to everybody. In fact, some of my biggest opponents wrote things today that I wouldn't have believed they would have written and I appreciate that they did that. This has been a very bad thing for our country. And despite everything we've been through, it's been an incredible two-and-a-half years for our country. The administration, our president, me, we've done a great job. We've got the strongest stock market, the best unemployment numbers, the most number of people ever working in the history of our country right now. Almost 160 million. Our military has been rebuilt and getting even stronger. Uh, We've done a great job, and we've done it under this terrible, phony cloud, a phony cloud. That's all it was. And they should be ashamed of themselves, absolutely ashamed. And you know who knew it was a phony cloud more than anyone else was Schiff and Nadler and Schumer and Pelosi, every one of them. They all knew it was phony stuff.
0: Again, you want to hate Donald Trump, don't act like Donald Trump says you're acting. He's absolutely right. They have made him right. They have made every word that came out of his mouth absolutely true. And if I were Trump, I would wonder about the Republicans who stood by and let that happen. I would wonder about, you know, not just Jeff Sessions, who recused himself when he shouldn't have, but I would wonder about all the Republicans who sat there. Didn't any of them know that Mueller wasn't running this thing? Didn't any of them know that a cabal of anti-Trump guys were doing the investigation? This has been a good week. And I think I should remind you of some of this or bring some of this up because the Clavenless week is coming and you're heading into chaos and death and destruction. None of you are going to survive that, I know. But like, but just to take this with you into the, into the deluge, uh, some really, there's been a lot of good news. Uh, the Justice Department opened a broad antitrust review into whether dominant technology firms are unlawfully stifling competition. Uh, this is a new threat for companies, reading from the Wall Street Journal, such as Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple, uh, Facebook just got fined $5 billion for playing fast and loose with our privacy, uh, but then they made $16 billion, so I'm not sure that they, they really care. But still, this is I, I don't think I'm being uh, a conspiracy theorist to see a little bit of politics in this. The Justice Department is opening up this antitrust suit while Google, Twitter, Twitter, And Facebook are doing everything they can to skew the the election. As the election gets closer, they have tightened up on conservative voices. They throw us off Twitter for anything that anything that sounds conservative at all. They really did have plans, I believe, to try and skew this election. And I think this is Donald Trump saying back, you know, you can do this, but if you lose, I am coming after you full bore. It wouldn't surprise me if a lot of this pressure on the uh, on the tech companies disappeared after The election, if Trump wins, you know, Project Veritas, James O'Keefe is still bringing out these Google guys who are telling us that this stuff is happening while Google goes in front of Congress and lies. Google, Facebook, Twitter, all of them, while they lie and say there's no bias. Uh, Project Veritas has been repeatedly bringing out these guys and then getting censored for it. Uh, Here is a guy named Greg uh, Coppola, a Google software engineer, who talks to James O'Keefe, just saying, yeah, they they basically, big corporations have
2: now melded with the Democrat Party. I look at search and I look at Google News and I see what it's doing. And I see Google executives go to Congress and say that it's not manipulated, it's not political. And I'm just so sure that's not true. I think as the election started to ramp up, uh, the angle that the Democrats and the media took was that anyone who liked Donald Trump was a racist, um, even a Nazi, and that got picked up everywhere. Uh, well, I think we're just at a really you know, important point in human history. Um, I think for a while we had tech that was politically neutral. Now we have tech that really, first of all, is taking sides. Um, in a political contest, which I think, you know, anytime you have big corporate power merging with political parties, it can be dangerous. And I think more generally, we have to just decide now that we kind of are seeing tech um, use its power to manipulate people.
0: It's good stuff, and you know it's good stuff because they keep knocking them off of YouTube and knocking them off Twitter and trying to ban them, ban but, you know, the, the word is getting out. Another piece of good news, the House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed several pro-Israel bills, including one opposing boycotts of the Jewish state, dealing a blow to far-left lawmakers such as Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. The vote was 398 to 17. And my favorite part of this was, I think it was the AP, it was one of the big news agencies, called this a divisive vote, 398 to 17. Well, They didn't say it was equally divided, but it was a divisive vote. A lot of good stuff happening. It's just a reminder. It's just a reminder when you feel this overwhelming power of the press, this overwhelming power of social media, when you feel this overwhelming power of the Academy and Hollywood coming down on you. Remember, the truth has a voice. The truth has a vote. The truth will out, as Shakespeare said. The truth will out. And yesterday, this week, I think was a good uh, day for the truth and a good day for the good guys. We're going to stay on the air because we want you to hear our guest, and uh, he served our country, so we don't want to uh, relegate him uh, to DailyWire.com. But that's all the more reason for you to come over to DailyWire.com and subscribe, because then you can watch the whole show. Of course, you can listen to the whole show anywhere, but you can always watch the whole show right on DailyWire.com for a subscription cost of just ten lousy bucks a month. Uh, that is a hundred bucks. We make it a hundred bucks for the year. You get the leftist tears tumbler. You get to be in the mailbag and ask questions. It's a good deal. So go over and subscribe. But we will still Stay with you and introduce uh, Jack Carr. He is an author and former Navy SEAL. He served our country for twenty years. He's the author of *The Terminal List* and his newest novel, *True Believer*, will be released uh, at the end of the month. His website is officialjackcar.com, and you can find him on Twitter at Jack Carr USA. Jack, you there?
4: I am here. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> no, it's nice to have you on. Thanks very much. Uh, so let, let's first talk about the book, uh, The True Believer. Is this a sequel to The Terminal List?
4: It is. So, so the first one was really a novel of revenge without constraint. And this one is uh, a novel of violent redemption, I like to say.
0: All right. I like it. Can you give us a, a brief rundown of the plot? Sure. So the first
4: one leads off with a guy who has a background similar to mine and that he was a former enlisted Navy SEAL sniper, becomes an officer. And he's at that time where he's going to get out and take care of his family. He's uh, he's at a lieutenant commander. So if he stays in, he's not going to lead guys tactically on the battlefield anymore. And that's where I found myself when I was deciding to get out of the military. And that's, of course, when disaster strikes and he's wrapped up in a conspiracy to test drugs on our uh, nation's most elite soldiers that uh, result in brain tumors, tum- t- uh, terminal brain tumors. Term- Tumors, and of course he unravels this conspiracy and starts putting the bad guys, who include some uh, uh, members of the, the financial sector and the government, in the ground one by one as he worked his way <laughs> up his list, using the tactics and techniques the enemy used against us in Iraq and Afghanistan so effectively on home soil. So it's uh, it can be read as really a basic novel of revenge, but it can also be looked at as a guy who uh, is really uh, becoming the insurgent, becoming the terrorist that he fought for so long. And then uh, at another level, it can be about a vet from Iraq and Afghanistan bringing the war home to people that have been you know, sending young men and women to their deaths for creeping up on 20 years now. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, that was the first one. And I was inspired by the, the church hearings in the 70s about some of the testings that they did on uh, military uh, members, people in uh, mental institutions, hospitals, uh, people at universities without uh, any uh, anything in place really to, uh, to safeguard, uh, the, the people that were really unwitting, uh, uh, human test subjects. So I figured, Hey, what if someone didn't get the memo? And, uh, now we're, we're so <laughs> many years later and we can revisit that. But, uh, second one, continuation of that story. And, uh, the, the, the protagonist, James Reese is, uh, uh, well, it was inspired by something that happened to me in Iraq in 2006, an Iraqi officer who was really head and shoulders above the other Iraqi officers we worked with, uh, as a tactical leader. And years later, I got word that he disappeared. And I thought, hey, what if I was to make this a lot more interesting and have him resurface in Europe now on the other side? So uh, the government has to track James Reese, the protagonist of the first novel down, because they worked together in Iraq. And he has to go find his former friend, who's now switched sides. So it's uh, very therapeutic to write, actually.
0: Yeah. You you know, you talk about I kind of noticed that you talk about that. You say the theme of this book is redemption. Why does this guy need to be redeemed? Exactly.
4: Right. So the first one, he, he uh, essentially is abandoning a lot of the things that he he fought for, that he believed in after his family's taken from him, his truth, his troop is taken from him. And uh, he just goes on to this rampage of uh, revenge without constraint because uh, he thinks he's dying. Um, and I got that from uh, just growing up, studying, just getting ready to go in the SEAL teams for most of my life, uh, studying the Japanese code of uh, the samurai, Bushudo, and how they would go into battle thinking they were already dead because they thought that made them more effective and efficient warriors. So I thought, hey, how do you do that in a modern construct? And uh, how do I make this guy dying, yeah, thinking he's dying anyway? And uh, so that was where the, the testing of the drugs came in. so really uh, now in the second one, he finds out that and it's not too much of a spoiler because it starts with this, but he finds out that he's uh, he's not dying. Huh. So now what do you do? Now, if you've abandoned all your principles, abandoned everything that you fought for, uh, essentially abandoned your your country, uh, now how do you learn to live again? And that's really what uh, affects, can be anything in life, any transition, but my experience is leaving special operations. So a lot of guys have a tough time doing that, uh, going from something that's so focused on the mission, focused on the guy to your right and left, um, and now they have to go on and start a new chapter in life, and that's oftentimes difficult. So that's where the protagonist of the story finds himself, learning to live again, finding that purpose, finding that next mission.
0: You know, I, w- I was wondering about this. I, you know, I, we all watched uh, that great Clint Eastwood movie, American Sniper, and sure. it had... Two things that I think really uh, reached anyone who saw it was it's, it opens with this horrifying choice the sniper makes between whether uh, whether to kill uh, a child basically right. or, or not and yet at, somewhere toward the end he says that I would stand before the throne of God and defend every kill I had. It, d- did that reflect your experience? Did you walk away uh, from the experience feeling no I'm I'm justified or did you walk away feeling uh, you needed redemption?
4: So luckily, I never had to face that choice that, uh, that Chris Kyle faced and that he, he talked about that they showed. So it, it's such a great job with that movie. And yeah. and uh, for anyone watching that, that is what Ramadi 2006 looked like. Whoever did that set design, they got that right. Um, but for whatever reason, I, I talk about this in the first novel where I explore some of the feelings behind what I did downrange and apply those to a fictional narrative. But what it's like to, to press that trigger. And, uh, you know, for me, it was it was relief. And I, it's a very strange thing to kind of talk about and explore because it's not the, the feeling that people would think that you'd have after pressing the trigger. And uh, being able to talk about it in a fictional sense uh, was, was, was uh, I don't know, therapeutic in a way. But you know, you train for so long this is what you will do. This is what you you want to do in defense of the country. And so, when you can do it, and you're not found wanting, your training's not found wanting. Um, you it, it it was a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I sleep very well at night. But I I also feel very fortunate in that things went my way downrange. And it can even if you make the right decisions under fire, uh, that old Murphy's law can really uh, <laughs> pop up at any time. And uh, even the right decisions can sometimes uh, turn out uh, you know not the way you anticipate. Uh, for, through no fault of your own. But, sure. uh, but I sleep very well at night and I feel very fortunate that that's the case.
0: Is, it, is there a reason that you decided to write fiction instead of nonfiction? I mean, obviously, you could, could, I'm sure you have stories to tell that you could have just told straight out. Is there a reason you went to fiction?
4: Well, I grew up re- – so in the 80s when I grew up, uh, and I wanted to do, be a SEAL since I was seven years old, mm-hmm. but a lot of the information about special operations in general came from the pages of fictional thrillers. Uh, there wasn't an internet I could just type special forces in or type Navy SEAL in and just have an un- – essentially an unending supply of information. Um had those from guys like Tom Clancy, from uh, David Morrell, from Nelson DeMille, from uh, A.J. Quinnell, J.C. Pollock, these guys in the 80s whose protagonists had backgrounds. Typically, they had Vietnam experience in the 80s. Um, But I knew that one day after my time in the military, I'd write fictional thrillers just like these guys that I was reading and enjoying as I grew up. Uh, So as I was getting out, I decided to give it a shot and got very fortunate that it ended up on the the desk of Emily Bessler at Emily Bessler Books, which is a part of Atria, Simon & Schuster. And uh, they loved it. And I think a lot of that is because even though it is fiction, it reads like the emotions are real. And that's because I tapped in to those real emotions from my time downrange. So uh, I feel very fortunate in many respects.
0: That's a very, that's a very cool answer. Jack Carr, the author of True Believer. Let me ask you this, you know, one of the things that that I find frustrating is our our military seems uh, to work so well. the, The people are so brave, the things they do are so difficult and they handle them so well. And yet our politicians, a lot of times, On both sides, they seem a little bit befuddled maybe. They send them into places and then pull them out. They send them into places and never pull them out. Do you find that frustrating? I mean, I know that a lot of military guys want to keep away from politics, but now you're done, you're you're out. And I I just wonder, does does that affect people in the field the way it affects those of us who are watching and rooting for our people in the field?
4: You know, I think it changes over time, or it did in in my experience anyway, in that uh, at first we were, I mean, at first we were, we thought we were going to miss it when September 11th happened, mm. I was deployed already. It was the second week of my uh, second deployment and uh, we were off to the races. Uh, but a lot of people that weren't deployed thought they were going to miss it. Mm. And that of course did not end up being the case. But as the years wore on and we got there to 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, and <laughs> it comes down to, Hey, are we staying in Iraq? Are we leaving? It was a very confusing time. Yeah. Uh, being on the ground there because you had uh, some politicians saying we're going others saying we're staying uh, hey if we're going to stay what authorities are we going to be operating under where are we going to be based uh, what is our mission going to be I mean it was just a lot of questions and so as a, as a leader you're trying to get keep the guys focused on the task at hand uh, while there are all these questions and be, all these questions being asked in a very public type forum because when you're downrange, typically you do have access to 24 hour news cycle because you're keeping up with the news uh, and it's in the, the tactical operation center. It's in your troop space. Uh, and you can, of course, there's the internet and, uh, and you can dive into all that and you can study it and it can get quite, quite confusing if you're a, you're a guy <laughs> on the ground, but, uh, you know, you gotta stay focused on the task at hand, especially at the tactical level. And, uh, your job is to, to kick those doors in and uh, get the job done. So, uh, you gotta stay focused on it in that sense. But, uh, I, of course, civilian control of the military is important, uh, for us in this country, sure. but you would hope, that uh, a lot of the civilians that, uh, that do have that responsibility um, take the time, energy, and effort to really understand the nature of the conflict in which we're either going to be engaged or the one that we're currently engaged in so they can make the best strategic decisions possible for the tactical guys on the ground. And I will say that if we had made on the ground the same kind of decisions that were made strategically for us over the last close to 20 years now, we'd probably be fired and sent home and possibly kicked out of the military. <laughs> <I get laughs> if that makes sense.
0: No, it does. I get it. Yep. Uh, I, I got Before I let you go, I just have to ask one question. You say that you had to give this to the government for vetting, that you, there were things you were not allowed to reveal. And a kind of uh, cool troll in the book is you You actually show the blacked out parts. Without revealing what you're not allowed to reveal, what kind of thing did they uh, make you take
4: Yeah. Well, I don't want to build it up too much because, you know, this is the government and it is fairly anticlimactic, but I wanted to make sure I was honoring my former security clearances. And even though this is fiction, uh, the protagonist has a background similar to mine, and obviously I tap into my experience as I write. So I wanted to make sure I was doing the right thing. But wow, when they take seven months to do a 30 day review, I guess uh, I shouldn't be too surprised. Uh,
0: (laughs) Did they take seven months to review the book?
4: Seven months. (laughs) So they they advertise 30 days. Uh, So it was in one month past, two months past, three months (laughs) past. Uh, I guess they're not big readers over there at DOD, which uh, shouldn't come as a surprise to to anyone. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they took a, took a long time, and they took 57 sentences out this time, but they took one part out that was just a country. And I'd never been to this country in in uh, in uniform. I'd been there years before I joined the military, so I could describe the mountains. I could describe the architecture. I knew it en- enough to describe it in, in a novel, and it made sense geographically for what was happening in the second book. And they took out every reference to it. They took out the reference to the architecture, to the mountains, wow. uh, every mention of the country, but once again, being the government, they forgot to take out the capital city of said country. Um, (laughs) but knowing their intent, I helped them out and I blacked that part out, out for them. But, uh, yeah, once again, they took out a country that I'd never been to in uniform and that's just kind of how it goes. So I'm appealing at this time and, uh, we'll see what, if we win anything on appeal and most every single sentence in there, my lawyers have found in publicly available government documents. So, uh, we're tying each and every sentence that they took out into those publicly available documents to see if we can win on appeal.
0: Well, uh, our government is nothing if not hilarious. Or at least we're paying for something. At least we're paying for the laughs. So.
4: <laughs> exactly. think if not predictable.
0: Yeah. Jack Carr, the author of True Believer. Jack, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for your service. And uh, great. Uh, have a great time with the book.
4: Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks. All right. A final reflection before I leave you all spiraling uh, into the Clavenless weekend where there is great wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, sometimes wailing, sometimes it's just gnashing of teeth. But usually uh, you get them both. Uh, a story I just love because it reflects really where the opposition uh, in this party is uh the kushner's uh, Ivanka uh, has a new dog for their eight year old daughter Arabella and if you can are watching, you meet this beautiful, beautiful puppy named winter. It is as as a, an attractive, lovely a dog as you could possibly get i'm sure Arabella being eight is thrilled to have this dog. What do you think? The dog is white. So what do you think was the reaction on the left? It was Unbelievable. One comedian uh, said, are you going to crate train or just use the dog on asylum seeking children at the border? Uh, an African-American actress wrote, good thing it's a white dog because <laughs> your dad hates blacks. Uh, Claude Taylor, who worked on Bill Clinton's presidential campaign and is a White House volunteers director, his opinion was, was the dog will fi- fit right in. Hashtag It's white enough. Uh, American actress Nancy Lee Graham tweeted how, Darlene, I see you skipped a rescue and went (laughs) straight to an Aryan breeder. Uh, does it sit and zig zigheil yet, Gron asked. Uh, a former m- member of the alternative rock band Marcy Playground, Jared Kotler attacked Ivanka Trump's White House role. Uh, pro tip, when everyone hates you for being a spoon-fed nothing grifter who's full of S, an advisor to the president who doesn't advise, when you want to seem human and get a dog, maybe a shelter dog would show humanity. Listen, the one thing we can say about our friends on the left is that they're hatred is eating them up from within. Uh, it should be fun to watch as they collapse inward into a pile of ashes. Yesterday was a good day. This has been a good week, uh, a good week, and I think we should celebrate it. Uh, it's a, we'll have the happiness montage. It's unfortunate none of you will, you know, make it into the next week because the Clavenless weekend is upon you, but survivors gather here on Monday. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Austin Stevens and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. And our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Edited by Adam Saevitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. And our production assistant is Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019.
1: If you prefer facts over feelings, if you aren't offended by the brutal truth, if you can still laugh at the nuttiness filling our national news cycle, well, tune on in to The Ben Shapiro Show, where you'll get
4: a whole lot of that and much more. We'll see you there.